Chapter 9, The Message On the way to Mary Lou's, Phoebe said, Mary Lou's family is not nearly as civilized as ours. In what way, I asked. Oh, you'll see, Phoebe said. Mary Lou Finney and Ben Finney were both in our class at school. At first I thought they were sister and brother, but Phoebe told me that they were cousins and that Ben was living with Mary Lou's family temporarily. Apparently, there was always at least one stray relative living at the Finneys temporarily. It was complete pandemonium at the Finneys. Mary Lou had an older sister and three brothers. In addition, there were her parents and Ben. There were footballs and basketballs lying all over the place, and boys sliding down the banister and leaping over tables and talking with their mouths full and interrupting everyone with endless questions. Phoebe took one look around and whispered to me, Mary Lou's parents do not seem to have much control over things. Phoebe could sound a bit prissy sometimes. Mr. Finney was lying in the bathtub with all his clothes on, reading a book. From Mary Lou's bedroom window, I saw Mrs. Finney lying on top of the garage with a pillow under her head. What's she doing? I asked. Mary Lou peered out the window. King of kings! She's taking a nap. When Mr. Finney got out of the bathtub, he went out in the backyard and tossed a football around with Dennis and Dougie, two of Mary Lou's brothers. Mr. Finney shouted, over here and that away and way to go. The previous weekend, we had had a school sports day. Parents were watching their children show off and there were even some events for the parents too, such as the three-legged race and pass the grapefruit. My father could not come, but Mary Lou's parents were there, and so were Phoebe's. Phoebe had said, The games are a little childish sometimes, which is why my parents don't usually participate. Her parents stood on the sidelines while Mr. and Mrs. Finney ran around shouting, Over here! And way to go! In the three-legged race, the Finneys kept falling over. Phoebe said, I wonder if Mary Lou is embarrassed because of the way her parents are acting. I didn't think it was embarrassing. I thought it was nice, but I didn't say so to Phoebe. I think that deep down, Phoebe thought it was nice too, and she wished her own parents would act more like the Finneys. She couldn't admit this though, and in a way, I liked this about Phoebe, that she tried to defend her family. On the day that Phoebe and I met the potential lunatic and then went over to Mary Lou's, a couple other peculiar things happened. We were sitting on the floor of Mary Lou's room, and Phoebe was telling Mary Lou about the mysterious potential lunatic. Mary Lou's brothers, Dennis, Doug, and Tommy, kept dashing in and out of the room, leaping on the bed and squirting us with squirt guns. Mary Lou's cousin Ben was lying on her bed, staring at me with his black, black eyes. They looked like two sparkly black discs set into big round sockets. His dark eyelashes were long and feathery, casting shadows on his cheeks. I like your hair, he said to me. Can you sit on it? Yes, if I want. Ben picked up a piece of paper from Mary Lou's desk, lay back down on the bed, and drew a picture of a lizard-like creature with long black hair that, as it ran down the lizard's back and under its bottom, became a chair with legs. Underneath this, Ben had written, salamander sitting on her hair. Very amusing, Phoebe said. She left the room 
and Mary Lou followed her. I turned around to hand the drawing back to Ben, just as he leaned forward and mashed his lips into my collarbone. His lips rested there a moment. My nose was pressed into his hair, which smelled like grapefruit. Then he rolled off the bed, grabbed the drawing, and dashed out of the room. Did he actually kiss my collarbone? And if he did, why did he do that? Was the kiss supposed to land somewhere else, like on my mouth, for example? That was a chilling thought. Had I imagined it? Maybe he merely brushed against me as he was rolling off the bed. On the way home from Mary Lou's that day, Phoebe said, wasn't it, well, loud there? I didn't mind, I said. I was thinking of something my father once said to my mother. We'll fill the house up with children. We'll fill it right up to the brim. But they hadn't filled it up. It was just me and them. And then it was just me and my father. When we got back to Phoebe's house, her, her mother was lying on the couch, dabbing at her eyes with a tissue. Is something wrong? Phoebe asked. Oh, no, Mrs. Winterbottom said nothing's wrong. Then Phoebe told her mother about the potential lunatic who had come to the house earlier. This news upset Mrs. Winterbottom. She wanted to know exactly what he had said and what Phoebe had said and what he looked like and how he acted and how Phoebe acted on and on. At last, Mrs. Winterbottom said, I think we had better not mention this to your father. She reached forward as if to hug Phoebe, but Phoebe pulled away. Later, Phoebe said, that's odd. Usually my mother tells my father absolutely everything. Maybe she's just trying to save you from getting into trouble for talking with a stranger. I still don't like keeping this. It's secret from him, Phoebe said. We walked out onto her porch and there, lying on the top step, was a white envelope. There was no name or anything on the outside. I thought it was one of those advertisements for painting your house or cleaning your carpets. Phoebe opened it. Gosh, she said. Inside was a small piece of blue paper, and on it was printed this message. Don't judge a man until you've walked two moons in his moccasins. What an odd thing, Phoebe said. When Phoebe showed the message to her mother, Mrs. Winterbottom clutched at her collar. Who could it be for? Mrs. Winterbottom asked. Mr. Winterbottom came in the back door, carrying his golf clubs. Look, George, Mrs. Winterbottom said, who could this be for? I couldn't say really, Mr. Winterbottom said. But George, why would someone send us that message? I couldn't say, Norma. Maybe it isn't for us. Not for us, Mrs. Winterbottom said, but it was on our steps. Really, Norma, it could be for anyone. Maybe it's for Prudence or Phoebe. Phoebe, Mrs. Winterbottom asked, is it for you? For me, Phoebe said. I don't think so. Well, who was it for, Mrs. Winterbottom said. She was awfully worried. I believe she thought it came from the potential lunatic. Chapter 10, Huzza Huzza. I had just finished telling Grandma Gramps about the mysterious message when Gramps pulled off the freeway. He said he was tired of chewing up the road and the white lines down the middle of the highway were starting to wiggle. As he drove into Madison, Wisconsin, Graham said, 
I feel a little sorry for Mrs. Winterbottom. She doesn't sound very happy. They all sound screwy if you ask me, Gramps said. Being a mother is like trying to hold a wolf by the ears, Gramps said. If you have three or four or more chickabitties, you're dancing on a hot griddle all the time. You don't have time to think about anything else. And if you've only got one or two, it's almost harder. You have room left over, empty spaces that you think you've got to fill up. Well, it sure ain't a cinch being a father either, Gramp said. Graham touched his arm. Horse feathers, she said. Round and round we drove until Gramp saw a parking space. Another car saw it too, but Gramps was fast and pulled in. And when the man in the other car waved his fist, Gramp said, I'm a veteran. See this leg? Shrapnel from German guns. I saved our country. We did not have the correct change for the parking meter, so Gramps wrote a long note about how he was a visitor from Bybanks, Kentucky, and he was a World War II veteran with German shrapnel in his leg, and he kindly appreciated the members of this fair city of Madison, allowing him to park in this space, even though he did not have the correct change for the meter. He put this note on the dashboard. Do you really have German shrapnel in your leg? I asked. Gramps looked up at the sky. Mighty nice day, he said. The shrapnel was imaginary. Sometimes I am a little slow to figure things out. My father once said I was as gullible as a fish. I thought he said edible. I thought he meant I was tasty. The city of Madison sprawls between two lakes, Lake Mendota and Lake Monona, and dribbling out of these other are other piddly lakes. It seemed as if the whole city was on vacation, with people riding around on their bikes and walking along the lakes and feeding the ducks and eating and canoeing and windsurfing. I'd never seen anything like it. Graham kept saying, huzza, huzza. There's a part of the city where no cars can go and thousands of people stroll around eating ice cream. We went into Ella's kosher deli and ice cream parlor and ate pastrami sandwiches and kosher dill pickles, followed by raspberry ice cream. After we walked around some more, we were hungry again, and so we had lemon tea and blueberry muffins at the Steep and Brew. All the while, I heard the whispers, rush, hurry, rush. Graham and Gramps moved so slowly. Shouldn't we go now, I kept asking, but Graham would say, huzza, huzza, and Gramps would say, we'll go soon, Chickabitty, soon. Don't you want to send any postcards, Graham asked? No, I do not. Not even to your daddy? No. There was a reason for this. All along her trip, my mother had sent me postcards. She wrote, here I am in the Badlands, missing you terribly, and... This is Mount Rushmore. I don't see any president's faces. I only see yours. The last postcard arrived two days after we found out she wasn't coming back. It was from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. On the front was a picture of a beautiful blue lake surrounded by tall evergreens. On the back, she had written, tomorrow I'll be in Lewiston. I love you, my Salamanca tree. At last, Gramps said, I sure hate to get back on the road, but time's a-wastin'. Yes, I thought. Yes, yes, yes. 
Graham settled back for a nap while I said a few thousand more prayers. The next thing I knew, Gramps was pulling off the road again. Looky here, he said, the Wisconsin Dells. He drove into a vast parking area and said, why don't you two go look around? I'm going to get a little shut-eye. Graham and I poked our noses into an old fort and then sat on the grass watching a group of Native Americans dance and beat drums. My mother had not liked the term Native Americans. She thought it sounded primitive and stiff. She said, my great-grandmother was a Seneca Indian and I'm proud of it. She wasn't a Seneca Native American. Indian sounds much more brave and elegant. In school, our teacher told us that we had to say Native American, but I agreed with my mother. Indian sounded much better. My mother and I liked this Indianness in our background. She said it made us appreciate the gifts of nature. It made us closer to the land. I lay back and closed my eyes, listening to the drums beat, rush, 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 and the dancers chant, hurry, hurry, hurry. Someone was jingling bells too, and for a moment I thought of Christmas and sleigh bells. When I opened my eyes again, Graham was gone. I glanced around, trying to remember where we had parked the car. I looked through the crowd, back at the trees, over at the concession stand. They've gone, I thought. They left me. I pushed through the people. The crowd was clapping. The drums were beating. I was all turned around and could not remember which way we had come. There were three signs indicating different parking areas. The drums thundered. I pushed further into the crowd of people who were now clapping louder in time with the drums. The Indians had formed two circles, one inside the other, and were hopping up and down. The men danced in the outer circle and wore feather headdresses and short leather aprons. On their feet were moccasins, and I thought about Phoebe's message. Don't judge a man until you've walked two moons in his moccasins. Inside the circle of men, the women in long dresses and ropes of beads had joined arms and were dancing around one older woman who was wearing a regular cotton dress. On her head was an enormous headdress, which had slipped down over her forehead. I looked closer. The woman in the center was hopping up and down. On her feet were flat white shoes. In the space between drum beats, I heard her say, Huzza, huzza. Chapter 11, Flinching. Early the next morning, we left Wisconsin and drove on, eating up the road through the lower rim of Minnesota. The land here was hilly and green, forest tucked in close beside the road, and the air smelled of pine. At last, Gramps said, some scenery. I love a place that has scenery, don't you, Chickabitty? I had not said anything about what had happened the day before, about being scared down to my very bones when I thought they had left me. I don't know what came over me. Ever since my mother left us that April day, I suspected that everyone was going to leave, one by one. I was glad to be able to go on with Phoebe's story because when I was talking about Phoebe, I wasn't thinking about much else. Did Phoebe get any more messages? Graham asked. She did. The following Saturday, Phoebe and I were going to Mary Lou's again. As we left Phoebe's house, 
There, on the front steps, was another white envelope with a blue paper inside. The message was, everyone has his own agenda. Phoebe and I looked up and down the street. There was no sign of the message lever. Mary Lou thought the message, this one and the other one, were intriguing. How exciting, she said. I wish someone would leave me messages. Phoebe thought the messages were spooky. It was not the words that bothered her. Nothing too frightening there. It was the idea that someone was sneaking around and leaving them on her porch. She worried that someone was watching their house, waiting for the right moment to leave the message. Phoebe was a champion worrier. We tried to figure out what the message meant. Okay, Phoebe said, an agenda is a list of things to be discussed at a meeting. So maybe it's for your dad, I suggested. Does he go to meetings? Well, I guess, Phoebe said. He's ever so busy all day long. Maybe it's from his boss, Mary Lou said. Maybe your father hasn't been conducting his meetings very well. My father is very organized, Phoebe said. What about the other message, Mary Lou said. Don't judge a man until you've walked two moons in his moccasins. I know what it means, I said. I've heard my father use it lots of times. I used to imagine that there were two moons sitting in a pair of Indian shoes, but my father said it means that you shouldn't judge someone until you've walked in their moccasins, until you've been in their shoes, in their place. And your father says this often, Phoebe said. I know what you're thinking, I said, but my father isn't creeping around leaving those messages. It isn't his handwriting. When Ben came into Mary Lou's room, she asked him what he thought it meant. He took a sheet of paper from her desk and quickly drew a cartoon. It was a little spooky because what he drew was identical to what I used to imagine a pair of Indian moccasins with two moons in them. Maybe, Mary Lou said to Phoebe, your father is being too quick to judge people at work. He needs to walk in their moccasins first. My father does not judge too quickly, Phoebe said. You don't have to get defensive, Ben said. I am not getting defensive. I'm just telling you that my father does not judge too quickly. Later, we went to the drugstore. I thought it was going to be only me and Phoebe and Mary Lou going, but by the time we left the house, we had accumulated Tommy and Dougie as well. At the last minute, Ben said he was coming too. I don't know how you can stand it, Phoebe said to Mary Lou. Stand what? Phoebe pointed to Tommy and Dougie, who were running around like wound up toys, making airplane noises and train noises and zooming in between us and running up ahead and falling over each other and crying and then leaping back up again and socking each other and chasing after bumblebees. I'm used to it, Mary Lou said. My brothers are always doing beef-brained things. Ben walked right behind me all the way, which made me nervous. I kept turning around to see what he was doing back there, but he was just strolling along, smiling. Tommy bashed into me, and when I started to fall backward, Ben caught me. He put his arms around my waist and held me, even after it was obvious that I was not going to fall. I could smell that funny grapefruit smell again and feel his face pressed up against my hair. Let go, I said, but he didn't let go. I had an odd sensation, as if a little creature was crawling up my spine. It wasn't a horrible sensation, more light and tickly. I thought maybe he dropped something down my shirt. Let go, I said, and he finally did. 
It was at the drugstore that I got a little scared. Maybe I had been listening to Phoebe's tales of lunatics and axe murderers too much. Phoebe and I were looking at magazines when I felt as if someone was watching us. I looked over to where Ben was standing, but he and Mary Lou were busy rummaging around in the chocolate bars. The feeling did not go away. I turned the other way around, and there, on the far side of the store, was the nervous young man who had come to Phoebe's house. He was at the cash register paying for something, but he was staring at us while he was handing them his money to the clerk. I nudged Phoebe. Oh no, she said, the lunatic. Phoebe hustled over to Ben and Mary Lou. Look quick, it's the lunatic. At the cash register. There's nobody there, Mary Lou said. Honest, he was there, Phoebe said. I swear he was, ask Sal. He was there, I said. Later, when we had left Mary Lou and were on our way to Phoebe's house, we heard someone running up behind us. Phoebe thought we were doomed. If we get our heads bashed in and that lunatic leaves us here on the sidewalk, she said. I felt a hand on my shoulder and I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. My brain was saying, scream, scream, but my voice was completely shut off. It was Ben. He said, did I scare you? That wasn't very funny, Phoebe said. I'll walk home with you, he said, just in case there are any, any lunatics around. He had difficulty saying lunatic. On the way to Phoebe's house, Ben said some odd things. First, he said, maybe you shouldn't call him a lunatic. And why not, Phoebe said, because lunatic is, um, it means... It sounds like, oh, never mind. He would not explain, and he seemed embarrassed to have mentioned this in the first place. Then he said to me, don't people touch each other at your house? What's that supposed to mean? I just wondered, he said, you flinch every time someone touches you. I do not. You do. He touched my arm. I had to, I have to admit, my instinct was to flinch, but I caught myself I pretended not to notice that his hand was resting there on my arm. That creature tickling my spine was back. Hmm, he said, like a doctor examining a patient. Hmm. He removed his hand. Where's your mother? I had not mentioned my mother to anyone, not even Phoebe, except for the one time Phoebe had asked about her, and I had only said that she didn't live with us. Ben said, I saw your father once, but I've never seen your mother. Where is she? She's in Idaho, Lewiston, Idaho. What's she doing there? Ben said. I don't really feel like saying. It didn't occur to me to ask him where his mother was. He touched my arm again. When I flinched, he said, ha, gotcha. It bothered me what he had said. It occurred to me that my father didn't hug me as much anymore and that maybe I was starting to flinch whenever anyone touched me. I wasn't always like that. We used to be a hugging family. As I walked along with Ben and Phoebe, I remembered a time when I was nine or ten. My mother crawled into bed with me and snuggled close and said, let's build a raft and float away down a river. I used to think about that raft a lot, and I actually believed that one day we might build a raft and float away down a river together. But when she went to Lewiston, Idaho, she went alone. Ben touched Phoebe's arm. She flinched.
Ha, he said. Gotcha. You're jumpy too, Freebie. And that too bothered me. I had already noticed how tense Phoebe's whole family seemed. How tidy, how respectable, how thumpingly stiff. Was I becoming like that? Why were they like that? A couple times I had seen Phoebe's mother try to touch Phoebe or Prudence or Mr. Winterbottom, but they all drew back from her. It was as if they had outgrown her. Had I been drawing away from my own mother? Did she have empty spaces left over? Was that why she left? When we reached Phoebe's driveway, Ben said, I guess you're safe now. I guess I'll go. Go ahead, Phoebe said. Mrs. Cadaver came screeching up to the curb in her yellow Volkswagen with her wild red witch hair flying all over the place. She waved at us and started pulling things out of the car and plopping them on the sidewalk. Who's that? Ben asked. Mrs. Cadaver. Cadaver? Like dead body? That's right. Hi, Sal, Mrs. Cadaver called. She dumped a pile of lumpy bags on the sidewalk. Ben asked if she wanted any help. My, you're very polite, Mrs. Cadaver said, flashing her wild gray eyes. She scares me half to death, Phoebe said. Don't go inside, she whispered to Ben. Why not, he said too loudly, because Mrs. Cadaver looked up and said, What? Oh, nothing, Phoebe said. Mrs. Cadaver said, Sal, do you want to come in? I was just going to Phoebe's, I said, glad for an excuse. Phoebe's mother came to her front door. Phoebe, what are you doing? Are you coming in? We left Ben. As we were going in Phoebe's house, we saw Ben lift something off the sidewalk. It was a shiny new axe. Phoebe's mother said, is that Mary Lou's brother? Was he walking you home? Where's Mary Lou? I hate it when you ask three questions in a row, Phoebe said. Through the window, we could see Ben lugging the axe up the front steps of Mrs. Cadaver's house. Phoebe called out, don't go in. But when Mrs. Cadaver held the front door open, Ben disappeared inside. Phoebe, what are you doing? Her mother asked. Then Phoebe pulled the envelope out of her pocket, the envelope containing the newest message. I found this outside, Phoebe said. Mrs. Winterbottom opened the envelope carefully as if it might contain a miniature bomb. Oh, sweetie, she said, who is it from? Who is it for and what does it mean? Phoebe explained what an agenda was. I know what an agenda is, Phoebe. I don't like this at all. I want to know who is sending these. I was waiting for Phoebe to tell her about seeing the nervous young man at the drugstore, but Phoebe didn't mention it. A little later, we saw Ben leave Mrs. Cadaver's house he appeared to be all in one piece. That day when I got home, my father was in the garage tinkering with the car. He was leaning over the engine, and I couldn't see his face at first. Dad, what do you think it means if someone touches someone else and the person being touched flinches? Do you think it means that that person being touched is getting too stiff? Dad turned around slowly. His eyes were red and puffy. I think he had been crying. His hands and shirt were greasy, but when he hugged me, I didn't flinch. When I had first started telling Phoebe's story, Grandma Gramps sat quietly and listened. 
Gramps concentrated on the road and Graham gazed out the window. Occasionally, they interjected a gall dang or a no kidding. But as I got farther into the story, they began to interrupt more and more. When I told about the message, everyone has his own agenda. Graham thumped on the dashboard and said, isn't that the truth? Lordy, isn't that what it is all about? I said, how do you mean? Everybody is just walking along concerned with his own problems, his own life, his own worries. And we're all expecting other people to tune into our own agenda. Look at my worry. Worry with me. Step into my life. Care about my problems. Care about me. Graham sighed. Gramps scratched his head. You turning into a philosopher or something? Mind your own agenda, she said. When I mentioned about Ben asking where my mother was and my mother saying, and my saying that she was in Lewiston, but I didn't want to elaborate, Graham and Gramps looked at each other. Gramps said, one time my father took off for six months and didn't tell a soul where he was going. When my best friend asked me where my father was, I hauled off and punched him in the jaw. My best friend, I punched him in the dang, I punched him dang in the jaw. You never told me that, Graham said. I hope he socked you back. Gramps pointed to a gap in his teeth. See that? He knocked my tooth dang out. And when I told Graham and Gramps about flinching when Ben touched me and about how I went home and found Dad in the garage, Graham unbuckled her seatbelt, turned all the way around and leaned over the back of her seat. She took my hand and kissed it. Gramps said, give her one for me too. And so Graham kissed my hand again. Several times when I described Phoebe's world of lunatics and axe murderers, Graham said, just like Gloria, I swear to goodness, just like Gloria. Once, after she said this, Gramps got a dreamy look on his face and Graham said, quit that mooning over Gloria. I know what you're thinking. Gramps said, hear that, chickabitty? This here gooseberry knows everything that runs through my head. Isn't she something? Just before we reached South Dakota, the South Dakota border, Gramps took a detour north because he had seen a sign advertising the Pipestone National Monument in Pipestone, Minnesota. On the sign was a picture of an Indian smoking a pipe. What do you want to see an old Indian smoking a pipe for? Gramps said. She didn't like the term Native American any more than my mother did. I just do, Gramps said. We might not ever get the chance again. To see an Indian smoking a pipe, Graham said. Will it take very long? I asked as the air screamed, hurry, hurry, hurry. Not too long, Chickabitty. We've got to cool off our carbusterators. These roads are taking the poop out of me. The detour to Pipestone wound through a cool, dark forest. And if you closed your eyes and smelled the air, you could smell Bybanks, Kentucky. Pipestone was a small town. Everywhere we went, people were talking to each other, standing there talking, or sitting on a bench talking, or walking along the street talking. When we passed by, they looked up at us, right into our faces, and said, hi, or howdy. And although it sounds corny to say it, we felt right at home there. It was so like Bybanks, where everyone you see stops to say something because they know you and have known you their whole lives. We went to the Pipestone National Monument and saw Indians thunking away at the stone in the quarry. I asked one if he was a Native American. He said, no, I'm a person. I said, but you are a Native American person. 
but I'm sorry, I read that wrong. But are you a Native American person? He said, no, I'm an American Indian person. I said, so am I in my blood. We watched other American Indian persons making pipes out of the stone. In the Pipe Museum, we learned more about pipes than any human being ought to know. In a little clearing outside the museum, an American Indian person was sitting on a tree stump smoking a long peace pipe. After watching him for about five minutes, Gramps asked if he could try it. The man passed Gramps the pipe, and Gramps sat down on the grass, took two puffs, and passed it to Gram. She didn't even blink. She took two puffs and passed it to me. There was a sweet, sticky taste on the end of the pipe. With the stem in my mouth, I gave it two little kisses, which is what it looked like Graham and Gramps had done. The smoke came into my mouth, and I held it there while I passed the pipe back. I held that smoke in my mouth while Graham and Gramps puffed some more. I was feeling slightly wing-doodled. I opened my mouth a wee bit, and a tiny stream of smoke curled out into the air, and when I saw that, for some reason, I was reminded of my mother. It didn't make any sense, but my brain was saying, there goes your mother. And I watched the trail of smoke disappear into the air. In the shop attached to the pipe museum, Gramps bought two peace pipes. One was for him and one was for me. It's not for smoking with, he said. It's for remembering with. That night, we stayed in Injun Joe's Peace Palace Motel. On a sign in the lobby, someone had crossed out Injun and written Native American so that the whole sign read Native American Joe's Peace Palace Motel. In our room, the Injun Joe's embroidered on the towels had been changed with black marker to Indian Joe's. I wished everybody would just make up their minds. By now, I was used to staying in a room with Graham and Gramps. Every night when they climbed into bed, they lay right beside each other on their backs, and Gramps said every single night, Well, this ain't our marriage bed, but it will do. Probably the most precious thing in the whole world to Gramps, besides Graham, was their marriage bed. This is what he called their bed back home in Bybanks, Kentucky. One of the stories that Gramps liked to tell was about how he and all his brothers had been born in that bed, and all Graham and Gramps' own children had been born in that same bed. When Gramps tell the story, he starts with when he was 17 years old and living with his parents in Bybanks. That's when he met Graham. She was visiting her aunt who lived over the meadow from where Gramps lived. I was a wild thing then, Gramps said, and I didn't stand still for any girl, I can tell you that. They had to try to catch Gramps on the run, but when he saw Graham running in the meadow with her long hair as silky as a filly's, he was the one who was trying to do the catching. Talk about wild things. Your grandmother was the wildest, most untamed, most ornery and beautiful creature ever to grace this earth. Gramps said he followed her like a slick old dog for 22 days, and on the 23rd day, he marched up to her father and asked if he could marry her. Her father said, if you can get her to stand still long enough, and if she will have you, I guess you can. When Gramps and Graham, I'm sorry, when Gramps asked Graham to marry him, she said, do you have a dog? Gramps said that yes, as a matter of fact, 
He had a fat old beagle named Sadie. Graham said, and where does she sleep? Gramps stumbled around a bit and said, to tell you the truth, she sleeps right next to me. But if we was to get married, I... And when can you come? And when you come to the door at night, Graham said, what does that dog do? Gramps couldn't figure out what she was getting at, so he just told the truth. She jumps all over me, a licking and a howling. And then what do you do, Graham said. Well, gosh, Gramps said. He did not like to admit it, but he said, I take her in my lap and I pet her till she calms down, and sometimes I sing her a song. You're making me feel foolish. I don't mean to, she said. You've told me all I need to know. I figure if you treat a dog that good, you'll treat me better. I figure that if old Beagle Sadie loves you so much, I'll probably love you better. Yes, I'll marry you. They were married three months later. During that time between his proposal and their wedding day, Gramps and his father and brothers built a small house in the clearing behind the first meadow. We didn't have time, Gramps said, to completely finish it, and there wasn't a single stick of furniture in it yet. But that didn't matter. We were going to sleep there on our wedding night all the same. They were married in an aspen grove on a clear July day, and afterward they and all their friends and relatives had a wedding supper on the banks of the river. During the supper, Gramps noticed that his father and two of his brothers were absent. He thought maybe they were planning a wet cheer, which is when the men kidnap the groom for an hour or so, and they all go out into the woods and share a bottle of whiskey. Before the end of the supper, his father and brothers came back, but they did not kidnap him for a wet cheer. Gramps was just as glad, he said, because he needed his wits about him that evening. At the end of the supper, Gramps picked up Graham in his arms and carried her across the meadow. Behind them, everyone was singing, Oh, meet me in the tulips when the tulips do bloom. This is what they always sing at weddings when the, ma when the married couple leaves. It is supposed to be a joke, as if Graham and Gramps were going away by themselves and might not reappear until the following spring when the tulips were in bloom. Gramps carried Graham all the way across the meadow and through the trees and into the clearing where their little house stood. He carried her in through the door and took one look around and started to cry. The reason Gramps cried when he carried Graham into the house was that there, in the center of the bedroom, stood his own parents' bed, the bed that Gramps and each of his brothers had been born in, the bed his parents had always slept in. This was where his father and brothers had disappeared to during the wedding supper. They had been moving the bed into Graham and Gramps' new house. At the foot of the bed, wiggling and slurping, was Sadie, Gramps' old beagle dog. Gramps always ends this story by saying, that bed has been around my whole entire life, and I'm going to die in that bed, and then that bed will know everything there is to know about me. So each night on our trip out to Idaho, Gramps patted the bed in the motel and said, well, this ain't our marriage bed, but it will do. While I lay in the next bed wondering if I would ever have a marriage bed like theirs.